0: So if you're ready to be bloat free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode on the Nourished Gut Podcast. Today, I'm excited to be welcoming back Dr. Brad Leach from Microba. And before we jump into today's episode where we're going to be talking all about functional dysbiosis, I just wanted to share something very exciting with you. So the team at Microba are running an exclusive uh, promotion for you guys where you can actually get $50 off an insight kit using the code NourishedGut. 50. So this means that you can order a microbiome test and get $50 off um, so that you can start to have a look, a deeper dive into uh, your microbiome and all of the wonderful things that we've actually been discussing over the three different episodes with Dr. Brad Leach. So a huge welcome back. Um, how have you been?
1: Carly, it's uh, fantastic to be back and I'm, I'm very excited to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is dysposis, and, and hopefully spreading some new light on this term that we uh, refer to as, as dysposis
0: absolutely I'm really excited for this uh session I think that you know we don't just have the everyday uh person suffering from gut issues listening but we also have um, some wonderful qualified health professionals listening and um you know I know that dysbiosis is definitely a, a term that is thrown out there with not always a very deep understanding so I can't wait for you to you know educate us some more about what this actually means so let's kick it right off can you actually just like what is dysbiosis so when someone says that <laughs> what are they referring to you know someone might be seeing a practitioner and the practitioner said oh you've got dysbiosis or you know um it's used a lot in universities i know that and graduates come out with this kind of loose term and not having a deep understanding so can you please provide us with some more um understanding of that
1: of course. So intestinal dysbiosis is a term used to describe a microbial imbalance or dysfunction anywhere in the body and is most common in the large intestine. So dysbiosis can also be used to describe an imbalance in the microbial community in uh, the, the, the mouth, the reproductive tract, the skin. This means dysbiosis is a very general term when we describe a microbial community which isn't able to perform its function that a healthy microbiome should be able to do. I think the most important thing to remember is dysbiosis, it's a general term and it's a general term to describe an imbalanced microbiome. Something I find uh, very interesting is that it's almost overused and it's this misconception of this concept of of dysbiosis and and you said it very clearly at at the beginning that we're almost educating our our practitioners and clinicians in a very nuanced way whereby we're not necessarily diving into what is dysbiosis so i I even recall that sometimes when i would be uh, supervising in, in student clinic the students would see a, a patient and then they'd come report to me and say oh my patient presents with x y and z and they have dysbiosis but they say that the patient has dysbiosis without any testing it's just they have dysbiosis this is such a broad classification of something which is so unique and personalized i currently think that this this dysbiosis, it's a bit of a buzzword. And it basically in universities and even in clinical practice, it describes the likelihood that somebody's gut microbiome is contributing to poor health. It's interesting that a lot of clinicians are using this term, but people like you and I, the, the gut nerds, we, uh, we can actually take it a lot further. And Understand this term in a lot more depth. I want to give you an example here. If I told you that my father has cancer, you'd probably say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, Brad. But if I told you that my dad had stage four pancreatic cancer, which is one of the fastest killing cancers, this would be extremely devastating and he would have months to live. But if I said, my 90 year old father has stage one, prostate cancer, you probably wouldn't be overly concerned because um, most older men have got stage one prostate cancer and there's a very high survival rate. Now, I understand that cancer and dysbiosis are two very, very different conditions and, and, and health reactions in the body. But what I'm trying to explain here is the term dysbiosis doesn't provide any context to exactly the health and function of the microbiome. To understand if there is an imbalance in our gut, you need to look at the function of the microbiome. In other words, what is the microbiome doing? Researchers have previously highlighted that the microbiome of, of healthy people can look drastically different to the next healthy person. Now, in fact, Here at MyProBot, we've looked at 60,000 stool samples, and we've found that every single person has their own unique combination of microbes and and species. And the species that you do or don't have don't necessarily determine if you have dysbiosis. It comes down to the function of the microbiome. So, So to conclude your question, Carly, dysbiosis is broad. And as clinicians, we really should be looking at this concept known as functional dysbiosis.
0: Yes, I heard my ears pricked up a little bit. You did mention that before. And I would like to ask you, what is functional dysbiosis? And can we explore that a little bit more?
1: (laughs) Of course. When it comes around to understanding the microbiome, dysbiosis, there are two important elements. The first of which are the species which are present and Most clinically relevant is the different functions of the microbiome. So functional dysbiosis is where metabolites are outside of a health. Now, if we recall to the first podcast, we we touched on this this concept of metabolites. These metabolites are, are small molecules produced by the microbiome. Now, these metabolites can perform a number of different functions, such as maintaining intestinal integrity, regulating the immune system, reducing inflammation, and even influencing hormones. As we mentioned in, in the first podcast, there are important metabolites such as your short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate, and even these nuanced metabolites called IPA, or 3-indole propionic acid. You also have not-so-good metabolites, such as your hexra lps or your um, trimethylamine or TMAO, which are linked with with disease. So going back to dysbiosis and functional dysbiosis, what we know is, is each person has their own unique combination of species. However, now that we have the technology available to look at the function of the microbiome, it's not who are there, but what can they do? So that is going to be the major thing to distinguish functional dysbiosis in in unhealthy and healthy people. This means that dysbiosis is not so much about the species that are out of balance, but more so the function that is out of balance. What we're seeing is that healthy people with a good gut microbiome have the ability to, to produce Uh, short-chain fatty acids, vitamins such as uh, B vitamins and vitamin K, and they also have less of a potential to produce uh, detrimental metabolites such as hydrogen sulfide and and LPS. Generally, a healthy microbiome has beneficial functions, while the gut microbiome of individuals with health conditions such as, let's say, diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, mental health disorders, their microbiome has a less potential to produce short-chain fatty acids and more hydrogen sulfide, LPS, TMAO. Um, Therefore, it's important to consider the function of the microbiome versus just the species by themselves. I want to give you an example. A lot of attention or attention has been given to a particular type of dysbiosis called Prevotella coprii, okay, Mm -hmm. that's where there's an overgrowth of of Prevotella coprii um, uh, species in the gut. What we know from this particular species is that they have a high potential to produce branch chain amino acids, which is linked with um, uh, insulin resistance, right? But there are many other species that can actually produce branch chain amino acids. And so it's not just Prevotella coprii that we're looking for, it's taking a step back and understanding, well, that particular species produces this branch chain amino acid, this metabolite, but there could be other species that could be contributing to that as well. Another another key example I like to, to share is with um, E. coli. So I recall a, a patient that I had he had inflammatory bowel disease, antibiotics for months and months and months, uh, high use of antimicrobials as well. Now, when you looked at his microbiome, he had a, a high dominant of E. coli. About 30% of his gut was wow, E. coli. That's huge. Huge. And mm-hmm. then when you dive into it a little deeper, you understand that 80% of the bacteria in his gut can produce lps wow and it's like whoa mm. um and i believe there's only 20 or 30 species in this patient's gut mm. um so it just goes to show that you want to look at all those other species Absolutely. and understanding our patients functional dysbiosis status is so much more clinically relevant than just saying you have dysbiosis
0: totally like that you could see my immediate reaction because I'm like I know exactly why that would be not so great and so detrimental for a patient with IBD but if you had have just said to me this patient has dysbiosis I'm like well that means nothing for me right now but because you've just said all of these specific details I'm like my brain's already ticking away about like how I might treat this patient or how this might patient might present so that's such a great example Mm -hmm so what are the causes of like I understand that we've got these like dysbiosis and then we've got functional dysbiosis we've got metabolites we've got species in our gut so can you tell us more about like how do people get to the point where they have functional dysbiosis and what might be driving that
1: most people with dysbiosis will have functional dysbiosis so anything that can impact our microbiome can contribute to functional dysbiosis. So if you can just almost recall all of the research and all the conferences that you've, we've attended on the concepts of, of dysbiosis, everything that may impact our microbiome may lead on to functional dysbiosis. But with the concept of functional dysbiosis, we can better understand how it's impacting and then also the treatment. So I give an example. If um, somebody has a low fiber diet, that there can contribute to dysbiosis, but it could lead to a functional dysbiosis where there's a low capacity to produce short chain fatty acids. So we know um, butyrate, acetate and propionate producers, they love fiber. And so when there's a low fiber diet, there will be less bacteria to produce these beneficial metabolites, thereby a functional dysbiosis. Um, You could also say, on the other end of the scale, a high-protein diet. We touched on this in the first podcast. A high-protein diet, if the protein can enter into the large intestines, it can feed up particular bacteria that then go on to produce branch-chain amino acids, leading to insulin resistance. Um, So anything else in the diet realm, such as high fats, low prebiotic fibres, high sugar, Uh, Food additives, pesticides can all lead on on to functional dysbiosis, even medications such as your antibiotics and non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, even supplements. Now, this is a really interesting one. I think the vast majority of naturopaths, nutritionists, integrative GPs, we love and we utilise a supplement called NAC, N-acetylcysteine. NAC has got so many different benefits from um, uh, insulin resistance and PCOS to biofilms, you name it. But NAC contains the amino acid cysteine. Cysteine is the fuel source for the production of a metabolite called hydrogen sulfide. So if you have somebody who has a high capacity to produce hydrogen sulfide, and now we know that high levels of hydrogen sulfide is is linked with intestinal permeability so if you've got somebody who has this functional dysbiosis and then you go prescribing NAC or even a a high uh, cysteine diet you would actually be feeding into this functional dysbiosis thereby making it worse Mm -hmm. Um, I used to especially in in the COVID days and even pre-COVID NAC was almost like a lolly it was like hey you get NAC you get NAC you you, you get NAC (laughs) I feel like Oprah, almost. Yeah. Um,
0: I was about to say
1: <laughs> <there's>, Oprah moment. <laughs> there's, so, there's so many benefits when it comes around to NAC, but now I'm really cautious. I evaluate my patients' microbiome. I even ask questions like, "Do you um, have flatulence which smell like rotten eggs?" A tail sign that somebody has high levels of hydrogen sulfide from the microbiome. Thereby, I'd be like, "Ooh, I'm very cautious, cautious on prescribing NAC." I may not do that. Another example, when it comes around to supplementations and functional dysbiosis, is uh, antimicrobials. So antimicrobials, they they have their place, and this is a whole other podcast and a whole other discussion. But what research is saying now is is high use of antimicrobials in some individuals can actually change their, their microbiome and actually lead on to functional dysbiosis whereby they have a higher capacity to produce hexa-LPS and a lower capacity to produce butyrate. Um, but that's only in, in a select um, handful of people.
0: Mm. And I really would love to to say to anyone listening um, or a practitioner especially, one of the, the biggest things I get asked is can I treat SIBO or, you know, gut dysbiosis uh, without testing with antimicrobials and I always say no like never make that your first point of call in fact I just wouldn't blanket it's like a bit of a blanket rule that I now have um, in in my practice is you need to know what you're doing you know you need to you have need to have a reason why you would want to use something like an antimicrobial um, to remove species of bacteria because you know even something like the the proteobacteria that you were talking about before there's certain antimicrobials that can affect that and make that worse um and if we don't know if that's there sure we could be using these antimicrobials to you know help with some form of overgrowth in the small bowel or something like that but is it actually making it more um a worse environment in the large intestine so I really really would love to encourage all new graduates or current practitioners um to, to Take a different path away from, you know, using them without testing. And maybe if you're someone listening who hasn't done testing and you have been on antimicrobials, to kind of seek out another option um, and some further advice around that, because yeah, it 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 can. It's not all one, even though they're just herbs. <laughs> you know, we need to use them with caution.
1: I'm uh, I'm very passionate about the. I'm a herbalist myself, so I'm, I'm I love my herbs. I'm very passionate about antimicrobials. And I'll be presenting at the NHAA conference down in Melbourne um, uh, during this year on antimicrobials in the microbiome. And I'm going to touch on my concept of test, reflect, protect, regenerate. And it's my core cool. four principles when it comes around to treating with antimicrobials. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll leave that as a, as, as a teaser there. Teaser, um, absolutely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um,
1: So, getting back to to your question, a lot of things can impact functional dysbiosis. As we said before, you've got your dietary uh, components, your medications, some supplements, lifestyle factors as well. So, if there's high amounts of intense exercise, that can lead to an increase in temperature in the gut, that can displace um, bacteria. infection. So whether or not it's a parasitic infection or a foodborne um, infection, like uh, um, Salmonella, that can cause functional dysbiosis. And the other one that I think a lot of people forget to, to consider when it comes around to functional dysbiosis are health conditions. So if you've got a particular health condition, that can then exacerbate or worsen functional dysbiosis so I'm talking inflammatory bowel disease IBS diverticular type diseases if you've got slow motility obesity intestinal inflammation all of these types of health conditions can impact our gut health and our microbiome thereby leading on to functional dysbiosis
0: Mm, there's so much to absorb it's so great um, so when we have functional dysbiosis, we find out that we, you know, we have some stuff going on in our gut. Um, how do we then best determine the best course of action, um, to understanding it? And then even maybe, can you touch on a little bit about like what we should be doing in terms of treatment?
1: Mm. So the number one thing, and, and you said it right there is testing after, you know, what category or subtype or functional dysbiosis you have, then we can identify individualized treatment strategies. We are in an era of personalized medicine, and this starts with acknowledging that everybody's microbiome is different and the treatment our patients need depends on on their microbiome. So you want to use a microbiome test to to inform you on the direction you should be taking with your patients. Um, Once we've, we've measured the microbiome, um, then we can develop personalised treatment. And I like to take three steps when it comes around to functional dysbiosis. And I refer to this as AIM, A-I-M. First, you've got A, which stands for assessing the microbiome. to understand your patient's gut and identify any areas that might indicate functional dysbiosis. Then you have I, which is implement, changes to their diet, their lifestyle, supplementations, to shift their microbiome and uh, address any concerns that you may have. And the last one is is M, is to monitor their progress, retest as needed to justify the course of action and and to actually ensure that what you're doing for your patient is is having the desired effect. So the treatment of functional dysbiosis is so individualised And it really determines based on what type of functional dysbiosis they have. I want to give you a few examples here. If somebody had high HEXA-LPS, so if you're looking at the microbiome report and they have high HEXA-LPS, I'd like to recommend a three-phase approach. I want to reduce the bacteria that produce HEXA-LPS. I want to bind onto any LPS in the gut, and I want to reduce the absorption of LPS into circulation, which can then go on to cause immune dysregulation and systemic inflammation. What the research has shown is three grams of GOS per day for five weeks has been shown to lower the bacteria responsible for producing hexa LPS. I'm going to add in a little caveat here um, start low, go slow. Um, <laughs> I've had patients. Mis, misuse the recommendations when it comes around to, to to these fermentable carbohydrates and a week after they start taking them brad i have got more bloating than i've had ever mm. before and that's because they had gone too fast it's yeah. really important to start really low and, and just go slow gradual other ones that i like to do to actually bind on to the lps is bovine colostrum Um, It can actually bind onto the LPS, preventing it from being absorbed. And then thinking of the the structural biochemistry of of LPS, it's it's fat soluble. And so when we have a high amount of fat in our diet, the LPS gets absorbed through the lymphatic system. And so a recommendation I like to give my patients is, well, regular amounts of fat. So reduce high amounts of saturated fat. Yes, even coconut oil um, and increase um, small amounts of, of omega-3. So that's that's an example for LPS. Yeah, so very, very different. Um you've also got functional dysposis for IPA. Now we've mentioned IPA a few times. It's not the drink, it stands <laughs> for 3 inol propionic acid. Now if a patient has low levels of this, we want to be increasing allergic acid-rich foods, such as Um, chestnuts, uh, blackberries, and walnuts. Um, There's even research to show that a Mediterranean diet can be beneficial in those that have a functional dysbiosis with a low potential to produce IPA. Um, Perhaps one of the most common functional dysbiosis or perhaps most important when it comes around to overall gut health is when someone has a low potential to produce butyrate, right? If someone has a low potential to be to produce butrate, there are a lot of different prebiotic fibers that we can recommend. We have resistant starch type two, which is uh, banana flour. You have inulin. You have a um, bit found in oats. Uh, resistant starch type three, which is your cooked and cooled rice and potato. Even um, pectin, so found in apples and citrus. These are just a few examples of what personalized treatment can do when we identify the type of functional dysbiosis
0: Mm. and what I love so much about it is that it is you know this is coming back to our food as medicine and moving away from that killing you know that classic killing of like and removing all of the time and it really demonstrates that you know a nourishing approach of food and prebiotics and and quite affordable therapies um you know with those prebiotics that you were talking about um and we can make incredible difference to our microbiome and I think is it still correct in that even up to a month of changing what we're eating and some of the things that we're taking we can see a significant change in the microbiome
1: Brad it is the microbiome can change with diet it can change It can change slightly day-to-day, hour Mm. by hour, but when you look at the whole microbiome and consider the overall function of the microbiome, that changes after about a couple of weeks or a month on on, uh, a different intervention. So that's generally why it's advised to measure the microbiome before any drastic dietary changes. So... I like to measure the microbiome even before I see patients. Um, So then once they come to me, I have the microbiome report and I can change their diet immediately without saying, "Oh, hold on, you've got to wait five days before implementing all these dietary recommendations to then ensure that we have enough time to measure your microbiome.
0: Mm, it's just so empowering. I just love that, you know, anyone listening can now walk away feeling empowered that within two to four weeks, they can start to feel different and know that they're making some really positive impacts to their microbiome. I just, I absolutely love it so much. So thank you so much for, um, it's just so wonderful to have you and you're just a wealth of knowledge um and you really break it down and make it so easy to understand so thank you so much um for taking the time to be here again um, we are coming back for another part where we're actually going to be talking a little bit more about the species um that should be in a microbiome and starting to talk about like what a healthy microbiome might look like so please come and join us for the next episode um and i'm assuming all of you are now going to run off and order a microbiome test and start to um, have a deeper dive into your own microbiome and i really recommend that you do so don't forget that you can use the code nourishgut 50 to do that and if you feel like you'd like a little bit more support we do have the nourish gut clinic with some highly trained microbiome naturopaths that you can yeah come and book an appointment with us and we can go through those reports with you so thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode bye brad see carly did you like what you heard leave us a review if you'd like to learn more about my nourish gut program or the nourish gut kids membership head over to my website Would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.